Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, for the second time in four years, the Hamilton Bulldogs are the alphas of the Ontario Hockey League. They punched their ticket to the Memorial Cup with a big win at First Ontario Centre. And the president and general manager of the dog, Steve Stales, joins us to talk about it. Border communities in Canada are calling on the government to scrap the Arrive Can app that's had a massive effect on tourism and not a good thing either. Now that Ottawa is lifting vaccination requirements, why not ditch the app? And a new poll suggests that Liberal and NDP voters think either Jean Charest or Patrick Brown would make the best leader for the Federal Conservatives Party. Why? We'll talk about that as well. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Of course, to begin with, it is the morning after. A, a great night, of course, at First Ontario Centre last night. An incredible crowd. And most important, a victory, of course, for the uh, second time in four years. The Hamilton Bulldogs are the Ontario Hockey League champions, and they have punched their ticket to the Memorial Cup. Joining us to talk about it is, uh, of course, Steve Stales, who is the president and general manager of the Hamilton Bulldogs. Uh, Steve, first and foremost, congratulations. What a night and what a season this has been so far. Hey, thank you, Bill. Um, yeah, it's been incredible. It's uh, just trying to reflect a little bit this morning and put some things in perspective, but what a special moment and uh, what a crowd. It was just, uh, I mean, we did it in 18 and uh, we did it again, and this one just seems a little bit different, a little more special. Well, for a variety of reasons, we'll talk about those in a couple of seconds. You must feel like a proud pop. Well, you are a proud pop, obviously, with one particular player on that team who carries your name, of course, and he was incredible last night. But, I mean, you had to craft this team. It was almost like you had a blindfold on because, I mean, you had to carry on and, and build a hockey club here during COVID. Some of these guys hadn't played hockey for a long, long time. And uh, uh, the work you had to do on this uh, it was, was incredible to try to put this team together, and it worked. Yeah, I appreciate it, Bill. You know, it just... We had a vision uh, after 2018. It started four years ago, really. I mean, uh, yeah. on some of the acquisitions, the way we drafted, all of that, you know. And so that's why I think even, I mean, all, both championships are incredibly special. Um, this one's a little different because, I, you know, we had the time to sort of plan it out and execute on it. And to, to be able to accomplish that is something very, very special. Um you know, we made acquisitions, we made big acquisitions at the deadline this year, obviously with McTavish and, and Arbor Jack at Hamilton's own, but also like Colton Kammerer, Nathan Stales, and further down the line. And you, and you said it, I mean, you know, when, when a general manager acquires his son, it, the perspective is not good. Um, and that was something that I had to get over because I knew I was doing it. I knew he was the right player for our, uh, for our team, uh, leading up to this build. And, uh, we did it. I think we did a great job to, you know, separate father son. Yet, you know, last night uh, there was that moment on the ice where it was father son. So it was very special. Well, and I, I, I guess that's always going to happen. That sort of criticism, you know, oh yeah, I just drafted him because he's his kid, or, uh, and we've seen that happen in other sports. And you're right, it hasn't ended well. But uh, uh, the fact that he won the award as the top defenseman in the league kind of shows that maybe you knew what you were talking about here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I had a whim. Uh, no, we, you know, it's funny in him in particular. I want to talk about the rest of uh, the entire. Sure, team, yeah, that, that I got a long list here. Because, yeah, yeah, but but Ben Gleason was such an impactful player for us in 2018, and he was our power play defenseman, and they're hard to come by. And uh, you know, as we scoured the league looking to try, try and acquire or even draft a, a player of that, you know, uh, skill set, it was a challenge. And uh, Nathan Stales kept coming up. Uh, and so that's that's when we made that deal. But uh, anyway, it all worked out for sure. 
Oh, incredible. And uh, great to know that he's back from the injury and play, he played a whale of a game in game six and seven. But as you mentioned, Steve, there are others. And I think last night was probably a classic example of what this Bulldogs team is like this year. Obviously, Avery Haynes, a big star with the hat trick last night. Uh, and he was just elated, of course, in the interviews after the game. But McTavish had a pair of goals. And and as great as those guys were, and they were, I mean, Logan Morrison was the, the, the playoff MVP. I mean, they, they spread the glory around because they spread the workload around, don't they? Oh, they certainly do. And, they all, they, you know, they love each other. They work for each other. It's the most selfless group I've ever been a part of. It's really special. Um, and uh, it runs right through the lineup. Every single player is pulling for one another. Um, you know, we, we've, we dealt with a lot more in, in this journey to our championship than we did, uh, in 18, the injuries, um, were, you know, it was, it was more than we could handle at times we thought, um, and just guys kept kind of pulling through. So, but just, you know, like Mason McTavish, for instance, comes in third overall NHL pick, um, all he wanted to do is win hockey games. He, he, you know, there's no ego. He just became part of the team. Uh, he worked and, uh, it was it was really cool to see, but every single player, Bill, I could tell a story about, and it all kind of revolves around their character, their heart, and their determination. Well, a, a quick anecdote here, and I, I know you can relate to this, uh, and that's why his addition, I think, was so important. First year, the AHL Bulldogs were in Hamilton. Uh, I, we did color commentary on the games, of course, and so I got to nail the guys a little bit. As it turned out, uh, Lauren Mollick the coach lived next door to me. He was running the house next door mm-hmm. to me. So I got to know Lauren pretty well. Anyway, long story short, there was a guy there that Edmonton had drafted, and he was, their, I think, their top pick. And clearly, he didn't want to play AHL hockey. He just figured, you know, I should be in the NHL. And he moped and kind of played in this half-hearted game. And it was frustrating and frustrating for the rest of the team. Uh, so I know what that's like. And it, he, that's not the first example of uh, we've ever seen of that. So when you got a guy that, who comes in there who's, you know, as I say, had an incredible year, uh, you know, playing, of course, you know, starting off in the NHL and coming back there. No, he didn't sulk. He just said, okay, I'm here to play hockey. And, and that attitude seemed to just permeate through the whole dressing room. And, and can't you see it when you watch this kid on the ice? Like, oh, he, yeah. You know, the energy and enthusiasm and passion is just infectious. But, again, it's, it's, it's um, you know, that, that's, a, that's a bit of a blessing when you go and try and acquire the best player in the league and then he comes with that attitude. Like, that's just, you know, icing on the cake as far as, uh, you know, adding to the team. But the core of this team, I mean, like Avery Hayes, Ryan Humphrey, Logan Morrison, George Diaco, all these draft picks. And, by the way, Think about my scouting staff, who we, we looked at Diaco and Costantini and Hayes and, the, and Humphrey in the fifth, sixth, seventh round, and they become incredibly impactful guys. So it's just watching these guys grow and develop uh, in our program, watching the coaching staff do what they did with these players, continue to you know uh, get them over the edge and get them prepared for games. And you know, it uh, the vision was all there, the execution was there, and that's what made it such a special moment last night. Talk to us about the maturing of, of Constantini as a goaltender. Like I say, he was not a high draft choice, but he worked his tail off, obviously. And, and again, he was a, a key factor, I thought, in last night's game because right after you guys got that early goal, to, to, you know, to take that early lead, they came storming back in the second half of that first period. And and Marco, was a, he was a, a brick wall in the front of the net. Oh, yeah. I mean, he to me, you know, it's funny because all these awards come out. But, uh, I mean, to me, Marco's the best goaltender in the Ontario Hockey League, without a doubt. And uh, But maybe I'm a little bit biased, obviously. But um, he was he's always just so consistent, you know. And uh, his ability to really just calm the waters down. He reads the play so well. 
you know, he's competitive, very quiet, competitive, but he's competitive. And uh, he just continues to be that backbone of our team. We can go out there and play our game. And if we get into any situations, he's there to, he's there to back us up. Just uh, before uh, you joined us here uh, on Good Morning Hamilton, uh, Rick Zamperin had uh, Dale McCord on, who was the captain of the Hamilton Finn Cups, the last Hamilton junior team to win the, stand, the, uh, the Memorial Cup uh, way back in 76. And uh, I remember that series. And the, the character of the team, Steve, is, is very similar to what you guys have this year with the Bulldogs. Uh, there was Dale McCourt, and there was Al Secord, and there was Rick Sealing, and, uh, and you know, t- so many, Willie Huber. I mean, all guys that went on to have great NHL careers. But they, they were there was no star on, on that team as far as they were concerned. They were all just there to win. Uh, you know, next man up, that's sort of an attitude. And that's, that's the way you guys have played all season long. Isn't that special? I think that's uh, that's pr- pretty common with any team that wins a championship, though. I, I love to hear Dale t- talk like that because a lot of what we've done, and I've talked to you about this and anybody who asks, son, when you're putting a team together, what are sort of the, some of the core principles? But it's that. You're looking for athletes that are selfless. You know, they have to have talent. They have to have the determination, but selfless as well. And uh, uh, I think this group, like we, we had – we had players step up at different times. They're always supporting each other. They're always happy for each other, um, you know, have their successes. So I, I think it's a common trade bill, like throughout any championship team, that you have to have that type of attitude. Well, I remember years ago, back when we used to actually do the show in a studio, and I'd have guests. Uh, it's been a while since we've done that. But you and Michael Landlar came in, sitting in the studio right across from me, and both of you said, because uh, I asked you about, you know, how do you put a team together? And it's not just skating ability or hockey ability or shooting. It's character. And, and, and I'll go back to the point you mentioned about your coaching staff, uh, because I know that that permeates right through the system. You don't just want the fastest guy or the best stick handler. Uh, there's, a, there's an element of character to championship teams, and you look for that in every one of your athletes, don't you? In every athlete and every coach and every trainer uh, as well. I think it's uh... – you know, culture is a little bit overused. How do you build it, you know? And um, we dig deep into it. And I think the more people you have around that are aligned that way, um, and that's where that's what's so special. I mean, me and Michael Andlauer were aligned from day one on the vision of this team and how we're going to, you know, uh, how we're going to do it. And, um, you know, we stay consistent to it. We, we, we do it honestly. We work at it every day. We live and breathe it. Uh, just my not not just myself but my staff like we we are fully invested um again that's what makes it more stressful especially in junior hockey um as you watch our, our players play but we were fully invested and uh, that's what made it so special last night well and you mentioned right through the organization so let's talk a little bit about uh, jay mckee here uh brought him in this year of course uh jay great career in the nhl of course uh, came also close to winning a stanley cup for the sabers uh, i still think that was an illegal goal but we'll, we'll let that slide for now and, and then came back of course <laughs> late you know later in his career of course he went and played uh, for dundas and won an allen cup uh, where that was played right here in hamilton but he was always had that reputation steve as a student of the game a guy that really was analytical about that and i think that helped him in his performance and that certainly was the way he coached this team too he he he's no highs no lows just an even keel which spreads around on the bench you need that sort of a coach but a guy who was able to pivot make changes and and bring that same sort of an attitude with no highs no lows let's just get this job done and 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 watch what's going on around you on the ice it's it's a it, it's amazing how you can transform those characteristics onto the team that you're coaching. I, I, that is so well said, Bill, on, on how to describe Jay. Um, you know, 
inevitably in hockey uh, at any level, especially in junior, things get a little bit sideways. And, uh, you know, Jay was that calming influence. And he was as a player. I mean, he, yeah. he's exactly what he was as a player. Not only was he detailed and focused, uh, but there's leadership and calm. And, uh, you know, we're just, we were really lucky to, to be able to, uh, you know, uh, when I was doing a coaching search, it became evident quickly. And I had time to do it. Obviously, we had COVID. I got to talk to a lot of great people to, try and map out this coaching staff but uh jay was uh, far and above the the best guy um and for all those reasons that you just talked about i mean these the all players are looking for a little bit of guidance and leadership in your coach whether they like to admit it or not uh and uh you know when you when you walk into a room and you know you're down a couple goals and then gene mckee walks in and Andrew Campbell and Andreas Carlson with their presence and their calm demeanor um, and their knowledge, you know, and experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just continues to drive our group. So couldn't be more uh, proud of our coaching staff. All right, let's uh, change gears for a second. Uh, the work is not done yet. I mean, this is a great championship here, the, the OHL champions, uh, but it's off to the Memorial Cup right now. And, and you guys know that route. I mean, you did this a few years ago. And uh, you know, that was a great championship team, too, as you mentioned. But you ran into uh, the Regina Pats out there, and uh, that, they were pretty tough to solve, uh, which uh, I guess was ultimately the undoing of this team. Uh, we know who's going to be in the tournament right now. I mean, everybody across the country seems to be ready to just hand the cup to Edmonton. I think you guys probably have another idea, don't you? <laughs> Absolutely, we do. Um, it's, uh, it's interesting. You learned a lot from that experience, and I managed World Juniors as well, but single game. Yeah. When you get, you know, we'll, we'll play our games and then you get into the single game um, scenario and anything happen. In fact, this Windsor series was something to, uh, if, if it wasn't a seven game series, we were behind on it, you know. And you talk about, well, you talk about pocket lock or, or calls going against you or anything like that. We had time to sort it out in a seven game series. We had time to regroup. Uh, at the Memorial Cup, you don't, you know, you really have to put it all on the line in one game and, uh, and, and be focused and ready. And I'm, I'm fully confident that our group, our players are going to be inc- extremely motivated, but also this coaching staff will, uh, will, will get them dialed in and, and ready to go. But uh, it is different. It's a different tournament. Um, you know, uh, I build these teams to play in seven game series. I build these teams to have the depth in the lineup where if we, uh, we miss a player, we can still continue to compete. Um, you know, guys get slotted in different areas. Lawson Shirk is an unsung hero for us. So this kid played center, wing, penalty kill. He he play all over the map and rarely talked about. But uh, those are the core pieces in the seven game series that uh, you know uh, you know continue to push the team to victory. And uh, um, but it's different than Memorial Cup. We're motivated, no doubt. We're experienced now too. Even as a manager, I think uh, there's a lot that we can we can uh, you know. Uh, relate to the players and, and be prepared for this. Well, I know our listeners in London know all about this. They watched the Knights uh, do so, so well for so many years, of course, and the Hunter brothers did such a great job. Uh, as have you and Michael and Jay and everybody else in this organization. Uh, we're proud of you. Uh, and we know that, uh, okay, you know, this is great, but uh, as of this morning, when you go up, it's time to start focusing on the tournament. First game for the Bulldogs will be next Monday. Uh, against the host team, St. John's. Steve, continued good golf. Congratulations on what's going so far. You've made the city proud, and we uh, we really do appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. I'm, I'm a proud Hamiltonian this morning as well. You bet. Steve Steos, right. uh, President and General Manager. I, I know it's probably a late night, so go grab a cup of coffee, Steve. We'll talk again soon. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. Okay, good night. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the announcement a couple of uh, days ago that the federal government was going to lift some of the restrictions on travel, cross-border travel, uh, means that all those problems about the economy in these uh, border towns is going to go away, right? And uh, No, no. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, they're very, very concerned, the mayors of, of, of many of the border towns, about what's going to be happening in the future. Ontario mayors whose communities have depended uh, forever on American tourists crossing the border, especially during the summer season, uh, are very concerned about this. Sarney Mayor Mike Bradley says that requiring would-be visitors to use that app that uh, the government has instilled, they feel they can come across the border for their vacation, is doing a lot more harm than good. You know, have they actually looked at the results and what the benefits are? And any person looking at it objectively would say they're not there anymore. I've learned a long time ago, I've been in politics a long time, when you're riding a dead horse, dismount. And that's what the federal government needs to do. Good advice. I uh, want to bring uh, our good friend, uh, Jim Diodati, who is the mayor of Niagara Falls, uh, just down the highway from Hamilton, in on the conversation. Uh, Mr. Mayor, good to have you back on the program. I hope you're doing well these days. I'm doing well. I appreciate you having me on the show, Bill. Let's talk a little bit about your situation. We've we, not, all through the the pandemic and the shutdowns and all the other government things that they've done, the initiatives. You guys have been hit hard, uh, doubly hard, of course, uh, because you you really rely, of course, on cross border traffic. You want people to come over, even if it's just for the day, uh, and a lot of them do. I lived down in Niagara, as you know, for many years. I started my radio career down there, so I know mm-hmm. what the economy is like there, and I know how much you guys are depending on this. In the, that interview there, uh, your uh, colleague from Sarnia pretty much said, you know what, the government's just they've forgotten about us. Uh, you people in the border towns, and there's a bunch of them here that we could mention, but we'll focus on the Niagara Falls area for the time being. You need help right now. And and there's a huge, huge roadblock here called the, this app that they put out here uh, that's causing a lot of problems. Maybe you could explain to our listeners, uh, Jim, exactly what the situation is. Yeah, sure. Happy to. Uh, you know, Bill, our our economies are completely and fully integrated and people need to understand you know there's niagara falls new york and niagara falls ontario and there's family and friends and businesses and employees and doctors and nurses that regularly daily go back and forth so we're fully integrated and it's number one issue of course is tourism and we're the number one leisure destination in the country 14 million people come here and typically 50 percent of all revenue becomes from the U.S. And that's been completely shut off. In tourism, 40,000 people here in Niagara count on it to feed their families. So it's right up there with oxygen in terms of importance. It's necessary. And some people say, oh, well, you got to diversify your economy. It's pretty hard not to be heavily invested in tourism when you've got one of the great natural wonders of the world right in your backyard. So what happened? And we were shoulder to shoulder with our federal counterparts We supported everything that happened. We willingly, and it was difficult, shut things down here. And it was devastating for two years in Niagara Falls. And I mean devastating. We went along with it because we understood. Follow the science. Let's be safe. Let's do the right thing. Well, we've been also following the science to this day. And experts like Dr. Zane Chagla from McMaster and a number of others who have said, there is no useful purpose any longer for things like the Arrive Can Act, like the the vaccine requirements for people coming. It originally, the whole idea was to keep COVID out. Well, it's here. Obviously, it's been here for a long time. That at the border serves no purpose. And I'll take it a step further, Bill. I've got a lot of seniors who have called me very, very upset. They feel that they're being unfairly discriminated against. And and I'll give an example. 
The Arrive Can app, it doesn't do anything to keep us safer. It just duplicates what we already know. So, of course, this gentleman, he was an 87-year-old man from Scotland who's a proud Canadian. And he said, my wife and I can't go over because I don't have the digital technology know-how. He was, I'm proud and happy to show I'm Canadian with my passport, proud to show that I've been vaccinated and have my booster. He said, but I'm embarrassed and I'm sorry, but I feel like I'm being discriminated against because I have a flip phone and I don't know how to do digital technology. And I resent the fact that I'm told, get your grandkids to do it for you. He said, there's no reason. It doesn't make me safer. I can prove everything. I don't need the app. And that frustration at the border is keeping Americans away. And it's frustrating Canadians that are simply not digitally, technically tuned up that they can't do it. It's a, it's a big struggle and a challenge for them. Well, I know there's another side of this because I know you've, you've been uh, vocal about this, as you should be, Jim, in a situation like this. For Americans that want to come over here and, and they, they're faced with this, well, you know, uh, do you have the Arrive Canada? And they look, they look quizzically at the guards. I've heard these stories anecdotal. Like, what are you talking about? Uh, here's a here's a news alert for the federal politicians. Not everybody pays attention to what you guys are doing in Ottawa. Okay, if you live in in in, in Buffalo or Niagara Falls, New York, or anywhere along there, uh, you're not watching Canadian news to any great extent. You don't know about this, so you don't have it on your phone. And and they're getting frustrated. And they're saying to hell with it. Then I turn around and going back. And of course they go back and say, well, I thought you guys were going to the fall. Well, I can't. And, that, and all of a sudden it spreads, and you're killing tourism when you do that. You're, you're exactly right, Bill, and that's exactly what's happening. America, like, I mean, let's face it, when you watch game shows, you know, they don't have a lot of knowledge about what goes on in Canada. They definitely are not watching what Ottawa is doing. And I'll tell you one thing, bad news travels a lot faster and a lot farther than good news. Even when I've traveled in the U.S. and I've been down in the southern states and people said, I thought you're Canadian. And I said, I am Canadian. Well, how can you be the mayor of Niagara Falls if you're a Canadian? Even Americans don't understand, a lot of them don't understand, there are two Niagara Falls. There's Niagara Falls, USA, and Niagara Falls, Canada. So certainly, they don't know about the Arrive Can app. They figure they're doing a good job. They've got their passports, and they show up at the border, family filled uh, in the uh, minivan, and they're excited about their trip up here, and they get to the border. They're told, you have to get this Arrive Can app, or you can't enter the country. And now they're at the border. They might not have Zoom. They might not have wi-fi or they don't have roaming and they can't download it now a, a lineup is forming behind them they're frustrated they tell all their family and all their friends let's bypass canada because it's an absolute mess and then i've got our federal counterparts saying oh no the compliance rates are great at the border and i'm thinking you know are you that out of touch that you don't realize americans aren't even coming they're so fed up with the nonsense they're not coming it's not that they're more compliant. They're not showing up at the border. You know, it's interesting about this, too, and I, 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 I'm glad you had some time to talk to us about this. Uh, as I say, having spent a lot of time down there, and still do. I mean, we, we love going down to the fall, sometimes just spending a weekend at one of the hotels there. Uh, how seamless it is between Niagara Falls, New York, and Niagara Falls, Ontario. Uh, you know, residents of, of both cities, it's like, hey, we're going across the border for lunch today. Well, that's 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 tourism. I mean, they're going to come across that. They're going to spend money. Maybe maybe they're just going to get wings someplace. Maybe they're going to go to the outlet mall. You don't know what the, whatever the reason is. But you're making it more difficult. And they finally, they're just going to say it's not worth the hassle. Uh, and, and, you know, they're putting a, a roadblock up here that doesn't need to be there, really. No. And, and, you know, the Americans are beating us at our own game again. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. So if I want to go to the U.S. now, when you get to the border, for anyone who hasn't done it in a while, they you show your passport, and then they typically ask you, 
have you been vaccinated? They rarely ask you to prove it. And you say, yes, I have been. And they, great, have a nice day. And you go. So I take my disposable income and I can go spend it at the Galleria Mall. Uh, I don't need to tell you how busy the Buffalo Airport is because it's so much easier to travel than going to Pearson, which is just an absolute mess. And again, this arrive can happen. What's the federal government do? They put 25 million more in to enhance and continue this app, which is simply a duplication of red tape. It doesn't keep us any safer. It's just a problem. And some bureaucrat somewhere likes it, the idea. Maybe it was their concept and they're trying to keep it alive. So now when I get to the border, I'm able to go into the U.S. very easily and spend all my money, but it's not reciprocated. The Americans are not able to come back. And with this latest announcement now that unvaccinated can get on planes, though being tested Canadians, well, now there's more of us that are going to spend our disposable income elsewhere, but we're not reciprocating and letting them come this way. So we're, we're getting bled at the border. We're taking our money out of town and we're turning Americans away. And as I said earlier, typically 50% of all tourism revenue into Niagara comes from the U.S. And to really exemplify the size of the tourism in this country, it's a $105 billion industry. It's no small number. And we've had it, of course, willingly choked off for two years. Here's our chance for a big recovery. And we're asking our federal counterparts, please, let's get rid of this nonsense. At the very least, at the land border crossings where most people cross, many more than at airports, help us survive, help us be able to pay our bills. There's no safety reason behind this. It's political. Let's eliminate it. Help us at the borders, please. Uh, and there's political talk going on. I know, as I mentioned, you've been very vocal about this. And uh, uh, as has Mayor Bradley, of course, I'm sorry, we just played a clip from his a little while ago. But the federal government response to this, I find it troubling, really, Jim. Uh, Transport Minister Gabbro was asked about this yesterday. He says, well, my colleagues are working uh, with the local authorities. That's a, that's a political cop out. We're working with them. There's no work to be done here. Listen to what's going on and respond and do something about it. It's not that difficult a task, really. But that's really passing the buck, saying, well, we're, we're working on it. In other words, and, and, and what's, I guess, even more frustrating for you is while they say that, which might even give somebody an indication that, well, maybe there's a chance of something change, they just put money into the program more money so they've committed to this for the long term but they haven't justified why well that's exactly what they're doing and <clears throat> there's no reason there's this is very simple it's not complicated and i can tell i've got a lot of friends who work at the border and they all say the same thing it's very frustrating i've had a lot of people had some s s very frustrating situation and i don't blame the border guards they're just doing their job their policy exactly it's it's the uppers in ottawa who are making very poor policy decisions you know in the business world you know you want to have good customer service this is the opposite of good customer service and they're making it very difficult for anyone to want to come here to spend their money here and here we've all been shoulder to shoulder with our federal counterparts to do the right thing and i know mike bradley in sarnia drew dilkins in windsor and many of the other mayors across this country we've been having these discussions and we're kind of in shock that they would keep this going it makes no sense and we know we've got a hundred days of summer to make all of our money and we're trying to fill in that big hole we dug over the last two years we don't have a lot of time to get it right it's got to happen soon and we're asking them please and the other thing is if they do it at the last minute we don't have a chance to market it and spread the good news to the u.s that we finally eliminated the arrive can app requirement at the land border crossings. And, you know, they'll always say, well, you know, we don't know what's in store for the fall. We don't know if there'll be another variant. 
listen, if that happens, then we reinstate it. But that's not happening now. So take it away. Give us a chance to replenish our reserves for people to pay back their debts. Let them to get back on their feet. We don't want CERB. We don't want handouts from the government. We want to stand on our own feet. Give us a chance. Untie our hands behind our back and give us a chance to fight on our own. And, and it's a realization, I guess, Jim, of, of, of what's going on here economically. I mean, we, you know, we were just talking about the three major uh, border crossings here in Ontario. But go down the uh, the list here, you know, all on Quebec, down through the Maritimes, uh, through the Prairie Provinces. I mean, one of the borders that were blocked during the winter was in Manitoba. Uh, B.C., the people from Washington State that go into B.C. in the summertime it, by the hundreds of thousands. And basically, it, you're making it more difficult, i.e., giving them a reason to not go. Uh, there's a huge uh, dollar figure on the table here, not just here in Ontario, but right across the country that they seem to be ignoring. Well, you're exactly right. And, and you know, Bill, we're competing with the rest of the world. Everybody is competing for our tourism dollars. And we've got a huge advantage. People love Canada. They love Canadians. Niagara Falls is one of the biggest brands on this planet. Matter of fact, yesterday, we celebrated the 10-year anniversary of Nick Willenda's famous walk across the Canadian Horseshoe Falls, which that day it was the biggest event on the planet. And, and you know, we were talking to Nick about it. And he said, when are you guys going to open up? You're missing out. We've got this really neat statue we've created where you can do selfies with Nick. And you give the illusion that you're standing on a wire beside him <laughs> crossing over the falls. And everyone's taking pictures and doing selfies. And we're doing all these things to open the border back up to celebrate tourism and all the great things that we've done. And, and we're fighting against ourselves. And I feel that we're, we're really shooting ourselves in the foot on this one. And, and knowing that we're competing with the rest of the world, we got to put our best foot forward. People naturally, instinctively want to come here. Let's give them a reason. Let's make it seamless. Let's take a customer service approach like anything else. I mean, Tim Hortons, McDonald's, they know that you want to get in and get out with quick, friendly service. And that's how we should be treating the border. But we use the exact opposite of good customer service. And gosh, I understand the safety rationale and reasons. And that's why we require passports and proof of vaccination. But this extra layer of red tape, this Arrive Can app does not serve any useful purpose. And as I said earlier, I'm not a science person. I'm not a medical professional. But the medical professionals like Dr. Zane Chaglet McMaster have said there's no reason for this any longer. And you took a lot of heat over the last couple of years when those lockdowns were instituted. And, you know, people would call, businesses would call and say, what's going on, Mr. Mayor? And and you had to defend it. Look, you know, this is the science, you know, and we, we've got to knock this thing down. We've got to get rid There's no defense of this. So I can understand your frustration. What about the provincial governments? I know this is not their gig. Okay, I get that. But they can provide a voice here, too, uh, and, and a pretty strong one. There seems to be some sort of a relationship now with uh, with Doug Ford in the, in the prime minister's office as well. Uh, you'd like to think that they'd speak up and say, hey, you're killing us here. Well, I think what I anticipate, they're probably about a week away from appointing the new cabinet for yeah. the province. And, End of the month, and they said, they, yeah. Yeah, right. And so that's why once they do, then they'll have a designated uh, person. That'll be the minister of tourism. It's been Lisa McLeod, and she's been terrific. Yeah, but but I don't know what the plans are of the premier. So once we have a minister of tourism, then we'll be talking to that individual to get them to help us rally support. But I can tell you, the general public, you check the temperature of the water, general public are, are very much aligned on this. They realize why we did it at the beginning. They also realize there's no purpose to it any longer. And anyone telling us otherwise 
uh, it's disingenuous. People are just frustrated. They're saying, listen, come on, let's get with the program. And if we need to reinstate it down the road, then we'll do that. But in the meantime, let's let these people pay their bills. Let's make it so that people are able to come and enjoy Canada. And that's what we're all about. People love enjoying us. It's a beautiful place, beautiful people. And let's share that with the world. Well, and just to, and we just put out our time here, but I want to finish off by reiterating a point that you made. There is a sense of urgency here. It becomes, when it comes to tourism dollars and people going away on holidays or even one-day holidays, uh, you don't wake up that morning and say, let's do this. You plan these things. And if there's not going to be an option for them, they're going to go someplace else. And even if you say, oh, hey, oh, by uh, July 15th, this is going to be over, that's too late. As you know, the people have made their plans, they're going someplace else. This has to happen yesterday. So uh, there is a sense of urgency for the federal government to get involved in this. And Jim, uh, first of all, thanks for fighting the good fight here. I think this is a worthwhile cause that you and the other mayors have jumped up on here because it's, you're talking about the economic viability of your cities. And uh, here's hoping that there's some uh, some victorious element to this somewhere down the road. And I mean, very, very soon, too. Thanks for being with us today. Hey, thanks, Bill. I really appreciate you giving me an audience with all your listeners and all your fans, because uh, if we all row the boat together, we're going to get this across to the other shore. So fingers crossed that they're listening to this common sense message. You betcha. Thanks again. Take care of yourself, Jim. Niagara Falls Mayor Jim Diodati, uh, with some very, very legitimate concerns about the economy and uh, the, the tourism impact especially in summertime. And as you say, these guys have been hit hard. How many times on this program we said, you know, all right, the tourism and travel industry is hardest hit during the pandemic. Now they want to try to get back on their feet. And the government's got to reach out and help them. That's all there is to it. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. An interesting poll from Leger Marketing that was done. Uh, and it says here that uh, liberal voters and new Democratic voters actually weighed in on uh, the conservative race. And they think that uh, Jean Charest or Patrick Brown would make the best leader for the federal conservative party. Laurie Paris has details. 58% of respondents answered they don't know or picked none of the above when questioned on which of the six candidates would make the best conservative leader. When it came to Tory voters, 44% of respondents believe longtime Ottawa area MP Pierre Polyev would be the best choice as party head. Jean Charest, Quebec's former premier, came in a distant second at 14%, while the four remaining candidates ranked much lower. With respondents who back other political parties, 25% of both federal liberal and NDP voters feel Charest would make the best Tory leader. By contrast, the data suggests only 6% of liberal and NDP supporters feel Polyev would be the best pick. Laurie Paris, the Canadian Press. Now, you may think, well, what's the significance of that? Well, I'm going to talk about that with our next guest, who can offer always a great political perspective on what's happening. Uh, she is Peggy Nash, former NDP finance critic and author of the book uh, called Women Winning in Office, an Activist Guide to Getting Elected. Uh, which is available right now in bookstores. Peggy, great to have you back on the program. Hope things are going well for you today. Thanks very much, and they are. <laughs> Good. Good to have you. Uh, let's, let's talk about the poll for a second, because I know at first blush, and I, I was talking to some folks about this yesterday, they said, what's the big deal? They're liberal supporters, our NDP supporters, they're never going to vote conservative. Uh, and that's not necessarily the case, is it? I mean, we know, for instance, that uh, in the last couple of federal elections especially, there have been an awful lot of disenchanted liberal voters uh, that probably held their nose and voted. They don't like the guy, don't like the policies, whatever the case might be. But you know what? He's the devil we know. Uh, because they didn't like the, uh, the, you know, the social conservative values that were being espoused by uh, another party. But if you, somebody's a little closer to the middle, that might just give them an alternative. And I guess the best example of that was what just happened here in Ontario a couple of weeks ago. You know, the, the, the PCs put a, a, a kinder, gentler Doug Ford image out there. And a lot of people that may have gone for other parties decided to gravitate to the PCs. It does work. I mean, you, 
I, I don't know if the conservatives see it that way, but there are people out there that will swing from one to another, won't they? Sure. I, I think it's probably a minority of voters who say, you know, my party is X, right or wrong. I'm never yeah. veering, veering from that party. Um, some people do feel that way. They're never going to switch no matter what their party does. But frankly, most people don't really get that deep into politics. They kind of judge the leader and they, they, can, they can shift from one party to another. And you cite the Ontario election as, as an example. I also saw that federally in 2011 with um, the NDP under Jack Layton's oh, yeah. leadership. And I saw a lot of people who had never voted NDP before who said, you know what, I like that guy. And they said to me, because I was the candidate here, I like you, I'm going to I'm going to vote NDP this time. And I think other candidates heard that across the country. And we saw it most notably in Quebec, where there seemed to be like a provincial wide mind merge that people were going to vote for the NDP. So people do switch parties. And one could argue it's who is the most centrist, who is the most palatable. I'm not sure it always works that way but that that can certainly happen well and, and it's a more classic example of course here in ontario aside from the fourth thing was 1991 bob ray got elected and I, I was doing this job back then i've been at it a while i guess back but you know and you'd had 42 years of conservative rule and then the liberals had their kick at the can with david peterson and i gotta tell you the last five six days of that campaign what we were hearing on the phones was you know what i'm gonna, I'm gonna give the ndp a chance and they hadn't never had power, of course, but they just said, you know what? I'm so fed up with the other guys. Uh, now I think this guy, there's an option here, and and it, so it will happen. I, I I agree with you. I don't think everybody in, in this country is in the middle, but they have their tendency that way. I think we feel secure as as long as somebody's at least you know skirting the middle. You don't want extreme left. You don't want extreme right. You want uh, it's it's like Goldilocks, check, you know, trying to pick what bed to get in. And I think that's where we are. But and I think one of the biggest problems the federal conservatives have made over the last couple of elections, we should talk about this too, is I, I think they've just said to hell with it. This is who we are. And if you don't like it, don't vote for us. Well, that's, that's why they're not in power. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think Aaron O'Toole tried to make that shift to the middle. And I think that probably made the both the, the liberals, the governing liberals and some conservatives very nervous. And I think the, the liberals had a, a tactic that they use that tried to polarize uh, some issues that that uh, skewered Aaron O'Toole and prevented him, uh, in part because of his own party and objections within his own party, from occupying greater middle ground. So it it can be tough to to reach beyond your party, but as as most people know, if you only base your appeal on your own party's supporters you're not going to win. You have to broaden beyond that. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's all, pol all politics 101, though, isn't it, Peggy? If you don't, you better define yourself as a politician, because if you don't, the, the other team will. They'll define you. And that was part of O'Toole's problem, as he yeah. flip-flopped on so many issues. And, and first of all, even conservatives I talked to said, wait a second, when he ran for the leadership, he was Aaron O'Toole, the hard-right conservative. And then he became the guy that wanted to go in the middle of the road. He, in other words, they felt betrayed by him. And the rest of the country is saying, what, what's this guy stand for? And so it was pretty easy for the opposition parties to just start to pick it apart. Uh, you gotta, you gotta be who you are. That's all there is to it. And you know, the, those are the ones that are successful time and again. And speaking of Aaron O'Toole, good segue, Peggy. 
uh, he spoke up for the first time in a long time, I guess really since uh, the last election, uh, and started blaming the Liberals. And of course, it was the man vaccine mandate policy. Uh, he's a little late to the party on this one. But he seems to think that was the deciding factor on why he didn't win the election. I, I guess there's, there's a few other things we could list there. But uh, uh, it's one of these things where it's it's the, the you know, soup of the day right now because Pierre Polyev keeps bringing up uh, mandates and government mandates and things of this nature. And, and I guess O'Toole is jumping on there right now. But uh, it's it's kind of interesting to see the, the back and forth that's going on between these parties now, once again, about mandates. And your thoughts on what you've heard and seen over the last couple of days? Yeah, I mean, Aaron O'Toole, I think, unfortunately for him, has been a little too cute on this. As you quite rightly say, during the the uh, conservative leadership campaign, he was red, neat, true blue, conservative and he appealed to that hardcore conservative base now i think you do have to win the support obviously of your own members in order to win the leadership and that is a slightly different approach from your a broader appeal to the entire country but his lurch from uh you know from that pretty hardcore conservative to, you know, not sure where he stood on gun control or the environment or, or vaccines. You know, I think in, in politics, something that everyone looks for, no matter what party you're in, is integrity and authenticity. And, you know, it's fair that people make mistakes. They sometimes have to backtrack. But if people feel they can't trust you, if they feel when they look you in the eye that you're out for yourself, that you're not you're not really thinking of the bigger interests and you, you um, can't be trusted. I, I think your uh, believability and your support can, can erode very quickly. And I think that's what happened to Aaron O'Toole. You know, he sounds like at heart a fairly decent person, but he got so tangled up in changing positions. And, you know, the vaccine mandate issue, do I think that there was some politics played by the Liberals? Yes, I do, unfortunately, because they used, which was, I think, a very sensible, actually overdue provision, which is requiring people to be vaccinated for certain kinds of jobs. Um, he used that to attack the Conservatives. And it was it was effective. It helped him get reelected but it was not productive for the country. And I just think, unfortunately, Aaron O'Toole, unfortunately for him, uh, he, he got himself tied into knots and he lost the trust of Canadians and the, and the trust of his own party, obviously, because he was later defeated. But this is one of the things I think that frustrates a lot of people that maybe want to get more involved in politics, but they get frustrated, is, is it's the back and forth and the rhetoric that goes on and, and conflating issues, like you said, you know, even the, I don't want to get back into the protest in February, you know, where they locked down Ottawa. Uh, but a lot of the stuff they were protesting were all things that had been done by provincial governments. Uh, not mm -hmm. the mandate about truckers, I get that. But, you know, you know, the, we, well, we're tired of the lockdowns. Well, the, the federal government didn't lock anything down. Uh, you know, they, that was Doug Ford. It was, uh, you know, Jason Kenney go down the list that instituted those, but they decided to take it out of them. And people say, well, I don't know who's to blame. I'm just angry. So I'm going there and I'm going to, you know, vent my frustrations and situations like that. So they get confused. And, and you're right. I mean, you know, when we were in the worst part of the pandemic, uh, vaccination programs sounded like a pretty smart idea. 
Uh, but now that, you know, I'm not suggesting the pandemic's in our rearview mirror, but things seem to be getting better, and that's that's great news. Uh, so now they're kind of going back there and say, yeah, well, they were wrong about that. Well, you didn't speak up a whole lot about that then. Polyev did, of course. That's that's just the way he is. Uh, but, but other people are jumping on the bandwagon right now. But isn't that, again, politics? I mean, you've been in the game for a long, long time. As soon as somebody sees a weakness, you, you prey on that weakness. O'Toole flip-flops, that's how we're going to define it. Uh, the vaccine thing was wrong. Jump all over that because the liberals seem vulnerable about that right now. You know, and the Emergencies Act and, and those hearings that are going on right now, they're 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 ready to jump on those things. And and it, for those of us, you, me, and others that, that eat, breathe, and live politics, it's okay. We we know that's the way the game's played. But a lot of other people just say, you know what? I haven't got time for you guys. Mm-hmm. It can it can create definitely a negative atmosphere. And you know, remember back when people were calling for greater measures and it seemed to me kind of late in the game that the federal government decided to implement vaccine mandates for truckers and remember they did it in lockstep with the americans so you could say that you wanted freedom from the canadian mandate but if you drove south of the border you had to be vaccinated but what happened there in my humble opinion is that organizers for whatever goal, whatever issue, I would just say general, generally small C or, or libertarian uh, organizers use that as an opportunity to organize people and was successful with, uh, you know, a number of people who were really uh, just sick of the pandemic. They were not, not sick because of it, but sick of yeah, all of the measures. I think we all felt that way that we were tired of of the pandemic we wanted to get back to our normal lives but uh, clearly some people leveraged that to uh organize what from their point of view was a successful um a successful pressure tactic in the city of ottawa and uh yes did some people use that to their political advantage i would say that Pierre Polyevre certainly did, and others in in other in mainly the Conservative Party in terms of embracing that. But I think the Prime Minister also, and and some in the governing party, demonized people who might have quite legitimately just ha- expressed their democratic right to go and and protest. And he, you know, he he kind of denigrated them, which which was also very polarizing. So. It does turn off the average person. They say a pox on all your houses. And I would say that is really unfortunate because we need people to be more involved and and take a greater interest, like yourself, someone who follows the, you know, the political ups and downs. Because I, I, I get a little concerned about the low voter turnout in Ontario. Yeah. And I think if there was a burning issue that people really cared about, they would come out and vote. But I worry that it might just be people turning off, as you say, and, and getting disinterested in, in politics. I got a couple of minutes left, but I want to get into this issue very briefly, if I could, just to get your read on it, Peggy. Candace Bergen, of course, is the interim leader of the Conservatives uh, on the federal level, pleading at the caucus meeting yesterday for unity. Like, let's stop picking at each other. Not the first person that said that. You know, former Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, uh, uh, even Preston Manning, uh, who's a small C conservative, never member of the party, uh, have said, you guys, you're killing yourselves here. 
this is it's pretty acidic, the stuff that's going back and forth between Paulie Evans-Charest and, and, and Patrick Brown and some of the others. Can you really bring a party together? I mean, there seems to be a huge chasm here uh, between some ideologies even within that party, and, and they're calling for party unity. Can that really happen? I mean, those smiles after the, the leader is chosen where they put the arm up and say, hey, we're all together, uh, that's a great <laughs> photo op, but it's not really th- the way things go, is it? Well, witness uh, Aaron O'Toole's demise. Um, yeah. But, uh, uh, yeah, it, it is always a danger during a leadership campaign that the the various leadership camps, if you will, can can really be so bitterly opposed to each other that that poisons the the party itself. Uh, I mean, I ran for the NDP leadership, and we tend to be more can't Simple. everybody just get along types, but <laughs> but um, I think yeah, there is always kind of a lingering. Uh, well, what can I call it? A residue, a feeling afterwards about, well, you know, they supported that person, this person supported that person. But generally, we were able to come together and say, uh, you know, we support these values. These are common goals. Let's all work together. It's never as smooth as that sounds. But in the Conservative Party, I think they they do have very different tendencies and it takes a lot of skill to knit those together. For example, you have the uh, social conservatives who feel very strongly about quote-unquote family values, issues like abortion and uh, I don't know what, um, LGBT rights or opposed to it. Um, So I think, you know, or the environment, there are things that uh, they feel strongly about. There are economic conservatives who are maybe socially progressive but say, no, I believe in fiscal conservatism and, you know, traditional conservative values that way. I mean, there's the oil patch folks. So I think there are different reasons why people get involved in the conservative party. Brian Mulroney was able to bring them together. Stephen Harper brought them together. And the question is, whoever they elect next, can that person, either through will or through negotiation, bring together the different tendencies in the conservative party to say listen let's agree on the things we can agree in agree on let's get together the goal is winning government exactly uh, we're gonna have to leave it there we're just about out of time uh, always a, a pleasure having you on the program uh, where can they get the book by the way the book is available available through indigo but it's also available through your oh, local independent bookstore and it's on the bestseller list for the independent bookstores for which i'm very pleased <laughs> excellent stuff well it's a, a, an exciting book it's uh, called women winning office an activist guide to getting elected uh, peggy thanks for this look forward to our next chat down the road thanks very much bill take care the bill kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on 900 chml The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.